I remember going to one Bible conference some years ago, and it officially got the title, The 35-Minute Conference. I don't know, maybe Brother Gormley will have that said about his this time. I understand, though, I've had conferences too, and you have to have at least a little rule of some kind, because there's always somebody that uh, would maybe abuse too much, and maybe some then would be most respectful. Well, turn in your Bibles to the book of Judges, the fourth chapter. You know, when you go to a Bible conference and you don't know what anybody else is going to preach upon, you always like to get something out of the beaten pies and hope that everybody will leave it along so that when it comes your time, you'll still have something to preach. Well, I haven't gotten out of the beaten pies all that much, but perhaps a little. We're not going to read the entire context of Judges 4. We're only going to read just one verse for our text, and after that, We'll bring a message on the subject of the Lord's going before. The words that we're about to read are found in Judges chapter 4. They are the words of Deborah, the prophetess, to Barak. And it concerns the battle with Sisera. Judges 4, 14. And Deborah said unto Barak, up, for this is the day in which the Lord hath delivered Sisera into thine hand. Is not the Lord gone out before thee? So Barak went down from Mount Tabor and ten thousand men after him. I want you to look at the expression that's found there. It's a form of a question, but the positive idea is certainly borne out. By the way, the question is raised. Deborah said, Is not the Lord gone out before thee? I believe there are two facts that come to my mind when I look at this text. First of all, in every undertaking, it is good for us to be satisfied that God goes before us. He must go before us in the way of our duty, and we must go according to His directions. Another thing that I see in this text is that if the Lord goes before us, we ought to go with courage and carefulness. Remember, if God goes before that no enemy will ever be able to attack us until, first of all, they have done battle with God. He's out in front, and we're following behind. So if the devil comes with his fiery darts, or if enemies come in great number, they must, first of all, do battle with our God that has gone out before us. And then after that, they may attack us also. That is, if they get around our God. That's why if the Lord be for us, who can be against us? I think there were many people in the Bible that realized that it was important to have God to go before them. I think about Jacob in the 28th chapter of the book of Genesis. He was very concerned about God going before him in the way. I think about Moses when he said there in the book of Exodus that if the Lord did not go with them, 
then he just didn't want to go. If thy presence go not with us, carry me not up hence, is what he said there in Exodus, the 33rd chapter. You know, one of the problems that the Arminians have is that they go before God, and somehow, someway, they want God to follow after them. But I believe that God must go before us and lead us in the way that we ought to go. Otherwise, we shall fail and we shall fall from our own steadfastness. I want to take just a few moments tonight to show you from the Bible how many times that it's said in the Old Testament that God went before His people. The text that I read is not the only one that I could have read. There are many others in addition to the text that I read from Judges 4 and verse 14. Let's go for a few moments to the book of Exodus. And this one you're probably familiar with. Some of the others you may not have thought as much about. In the 13th chapter of the book of Exodus, you remember how that the Israelites had the pillar of cloud and the pillar of fire. Note how that that's written in the book of Exodus, the 13th chapter, verse 21 and 22. And the Lord went before them, not behind And the Lord went before them by day in a pillar of a cloud to lead them the way and by night in a pillar of fire to give them light to go by day and night. He took not away the pillar of the cloud by day, nor the pillar of fire by night from before the people. So here again we see that in the time of Israel's journeying, in the days of Moses, that God went before them. Not behind them, but before them. And then there's also a statement about that in Psalm 68 and verse 7. says pretty much what we just read. We shall not read that. But God conducted them from a land of oppression through a wilderness, into a land of promise. And in a sense, he's doing that for every one of us. Then coming on down later, as they enter the land of Canaan, they begin the conquest of the land of Canaan. God went before them in the battles that they had with the Canaanites. In the book of Deuteronomy, chapter 9, in verse 3, there is written this statement. Understand, therefore, this day, that the Lord thy God is he which goeth out before thee. As a consuming fire, he shall destroy them, and he shall bring them down before thy face. So shall thou drive them out and destroy them quickly, as the Lord hath said unto thee. So the Lord went before the Israelites as they were engaged in the conquest of the land of Canaan. Even later, after they had subjugated the land in the days of David, the Lord was still going before them. In the book of 2 Samuel, chapter 5, you can see this example. The Lord had told David to go out and engage in a battle with the Philistines. 
And he told him to wait until there was a noise in the top of the mulberry trees. A lot of times we want to go before God says to go. We don't want to wait on the Lord. We want to go out when we get ready, not when He gets ready. Look at verse 24 there of 2 Samuel chapter 5. And let it be when thou hearest the sound of a going in the tops of the mulberry trees, that then thou shalt bestir thyself, for then shall the Lord go out before thee to smite the host of the Philistines. So the Lord is still there going before His people. Even at the time of the prophets, in the days of Isaiah, the Lord was doing the same. In Isaiah 52 and verse 12, For ye shall not go out with haste, nor go by flight, for the Lord will go before you, and the God of Israel will be your reward. So when you begin to study the history of the nation of Israel from the time of its deliverance from Egyptian bondage all the way through the time of the kings and the prophets, you see that the Lord went before His people. So that's the thought that I want to stress in this message. That is the Lord's going before. I believe that the Lord has gone before, first of all, in the way of grace. We did not choose the Lord that He might in turn choose us. Back in the council halls of eternity... He elected a people to inherit grace and glory. He sovereignly chose them out of the love that was in his own heart toward them. He chose us because we would have never have chosen him. But I'm telling you that the Lord went before. He elected a people and he set them apart. By purpose and by plan. We're told in the book of Psalms, the fourth division and verse 3, But know that the Lord has set apart him that is godly for himself. So God set us apart by sovereign election. Sometimes when you speak about this doctrine of election and you try to get people to see how that the Lord went before and prepared all of this grace that we enjoy and mercy, they begin to upbraid you and say that you must believe in sovereign grace. Well, I believe in sovereign grace, yes. You must believe in free grace. Yes, I do. That's the only kind there is. You must believe in distinguishing grace. I certainly do. That's the only kind there is. One man told me some weeks ago, he said, the reason that I don't like what you preach is because you don't believe in free will. I said, you misunderstand. I said, I do believe in salvation by free will. I said, as a matter of fact, I'm a free willer all the way. He looked at me like he thought I'd maybe lost my marvels. I said, I believe that a man saved by the free will of God the Father that chose the people. 
I believe that He's saved by the free will of the Son that died to redeem them. And I believe that He's saved by the free will of the Holy Spirit that sanctifies and saves them. So I said, I'm a free willer all the way, you see. And I do believe in salvation by that kind of free will. Because in the book of James, chapter 1 and verse 18, it says, Of His own will begat He us with the word of truth. It's not of Him that willeth, nor of Him that runneth, but it's of God that showeth mercy. We were born again not by the will of blood or the will of the flesh, or the will of man, but by the will of God. So yes, we do believe in salvation by free will. It's by the free will of God. Somebody said, well, then you believe that a man will be saved whether he wills to be saved or not. No, I don't believe that. I don't preach anything like that. I believe that the Lord can make the unwilling sinner willing to be saved. I believe that God works in us both to will and to do His good pleasure because that's what we're told in the Bible. In the day of His irresistible power, His people will all be willing. And that too we're told in the Bible. You have some people that preach doctrine that I don't really care too much for. They may not care much for mine, but I guess that's where it has to be. I hear them go around and they say, you need to give your heart to Jesus. I wonder what the Lord would do with these old totally depraved hearts. If he had we turn them over to him. What, what would he want with anything like that anyway? A holy God. Think about that. He'd probably rather have her liver than to have her heart, I guess. May not be as defiled. May not be as incurably wicked. I don't believe that the sinner needs to give his heart to Jesus. But I believe that Jesus needs to give him a new heart and a new spirit. Because that's what the Lord promised he'd do in Ezekiel, the 36th chapter. In the book of Jeremiah, chapter 24, verse 7, he said, I'll give them a heart to know me. Then there are others that say, well, now, if you'll just open up your heart, Jesus will come in. He's standing out there knocking. The knob's on the inside. He can't get in. You don't open the door and let him in. Sounds good. One fellow said, I know it's so. I saw a picture in the Bible like that. Well, let me tell you what. If the Lord didn't have any problem tearing down the walls of Jericho, He's not going to have any problem getting in the heart of the sinner. He can tear that door down if he wants to. But I don't believe he does. I believe he does exactly in the case of every sinner like he did with Lydia when he opened her heart that she might attend unto the words that were spoken. There in Acts the 16th chapter and verse 14. And then some say all of these other things. And I won't go into that because I want to get to some other parts of this sermon. You know over there in the parable of the sower in the 13th chapter of Matthew there were four kinds of soil. Same seed, same soil. The difference is in the soil. So you see, when we preach the Word of God, what we need to find is hearts that are prepared to receive it. The difference is not so much in the sower or in the seed, but it's in the kind of soil that you put the seed in, you see. And God has to prepare the soil of the human heart to receive the Word of God. So 
I tell you, when it comes to this matter of election unto salvation, God has gone before His people in the way, and He has prepared all of these things for us. Then I believe that God has gone before us in the way of creation. I wasn't here when God created the world, were you? But I believe that in the beginning God created the heavens and the earth. The Bible says much concerning this. I was thinking today about the passage in Psalms 33 where it said in verse 6, By the word of the Lord were the heavens made and all the host of them by the breath of His mouth. And then it's further said down there, He spake and it was done. He commanded and it stood fast. God created this earth for man. He created this earth and He made man the Lord of the earth, according to Genesis 1.26 and the 8th Psalm. The heaven of heavens is the Lord's, but the earth He's given to the children of men, the Bible says. So sometimes when I begin to look at this wonderful earth that God has created, I marvel at His work of creation. Anybody that lives in this part of the country when the leaves are turning and when it is so beautiful out on the hillsides, I wonder how anybody can be skeptical of the existence of God. Who could make all of that beauty that we saw just a few weeks ago? What artist has ever painted anything to compare with the beauty that we saw in the leaves on the trees alone? I go out and I look in amazement. I think of the verse that says, Behold, who has created all these things. God stretched out the north over the empty place, and He hanged the earth upon nothing. I can think of it as almost like building a house, you see. You know, you can you build a beautiful house, maybe you're building it for your wife or for your prospective bride or something to that effect. You get everything ready, you know, and you got it just ideal the way you think it ought to be. Then you take it down and you show it to her. But when you look at the work of creation in Genesis chapter 1, God, so to speak, was building a beautiful home for man. And the crowning work of all of that creative week was the creation of man. But man was created last. He was created after the house was already built, you see. What? God had gone before in the way and prepared it for him. So God goes before in creation. He is the creator. He made it all, and he made it for the children of men. The Bible tells us so. Think about all of the, the earth, the lights, the clouds, the vegetation, the heavenly bodies, the fish, the fowl, the land animals. They were all created before God put man upon this earth. So when you think about creation, you can see how that God went before in the way and prepared it all for man. And I would like to point out that I believe that God goes before in the way of providence. Now, some of you may part company with me before I finish this. You'll find out what I believe, though, in the next few moments. There are many people that believe they are the governors of their own lives and the decider of their own faith. I marvel that we find that in the camp of Christendom. 
Because essentially that's what the communists say, the secular humanists and the evolutionists, and shall I go on? Yet we have some that profess to be Christians that in a sense believe almost the same humanistic doctrine that they preach. I believe that God's in control of the world. I don't believe that He left it just to run its course and turned His back and looked the other way. I don't believe that He does just a few things in providence. I believe that His determinate counsel and foreknowledge underlines all events that transpire in time and eternity. I believe that God governs all things after the counsel of His own will. And just how detailed that counsel and that providential dealings is is clearly set forth in the book of Isaiah in the 46th chapter when it said there in verse 10 and 11, declaring the end from the beginning and from the ancient times, the things that are not yet done, saying, My counsel shall stand. Not might, but shall. And I will do all my pleasure. Not some, but all, he said. Well, now, does that involve little bitty things like a bird flying around and a man going one place to another? Let's read on. Calling a ravenous bird from the east, the man that executeth my counsel from a far country. Yea, I have spoken it, I will also bring it to pass. I have purposed it, I will also do it. You know why it is that all things work together for good to them that love God, that are the called according to His purpose? Because in Ephesians 1 and 11, the Bible says that He worketh all things after the counsel of His own will. If there is anything that did not enter into God's providence, then one single event could disrupt the whole plan and program of God. Well, you, you must believe then in the absolute predestination of all things. Yes, I do. I don't believe in the predestination of some things. You may want to call it foreordination. I don't care what you call it. You can call it predestination. That's good enough for me. I was talking some weeks ago to a man who is supposed to be. He told me he was a primitive Baptist. And I won't go into what I think about that, but that's what he told me he was. During the course of our conversation, I realized that I believe more about predestination than he did. Because he believed in the predestination of some things, whereas I believed in the predestination of all things. So I've discovered something. I believe more about predestination than a Presbyterian. And I believe more about coordination than a hardship. I don't think anybody would debate the fact that God is behind all the good events that takes place. I think just about everybody will agree to that. But you know, somehow, some way, I hear people talking, and it sounds like this. That while God is doing all the good things that takes place, and he, he knows something about that, and he's involved in that, but all of these bad things, that's the devil, and that's the demons, and that's the depravative man. There's a measure of truth to that, but not a great deal of truth. God has determined even the bad things that are going to happen. I didn't say He caused them. Foreknowledge is no more causative than afterknowledge as far as that goes. I want to take just a few moments to show you that 
The providence of God does extend to the evil acts of men. A lot of people today that don't believe that, but I happen to be one of them that does. You say, well, why? Because I can find it in the Bible. Well, you agree with me that when Joseph's brethren sold him into slavery, that that was an evil act? Put their brother down in an old pit? Took him up out of that old pit and sold him as a slave? Sent him off from home? Lied to the father about his whereabouts? That was an evil act. There's no other way in the world you can deny it was an evil act. It surely was. But what about that act in the providence of God? Well, let's just open up the Bible and see what the Bible says. In the book of Genesis, the 45th chapter, look at verse 7 and 8. And God sent me before you to preserve your posterity in the earth and to save your lives by great deliverance. Now watch. So now it was not you that sent me hither, but God. And he hath made me a father to Pharaoh, and a lord of all of his house, and a ruler throughout all the land of Egypt. Then go over here to the 50th chapter, and look at the 20th verse. But as for you, ye thought evil against me. Now, was that an evil act? The Bible said so. But God meant it unto good. You know why I believe God's God? Because He can turn evil into good. And I don't know if anybody else can do that, do you? He did in this case. But God meant it unto good to bring to pass, as it is this day, to save much people alive. I could just go on time after time. Let me show you another example. Will you agree with me that the rise and reign of Antichrist is an evil event? That's, that's really a very evil event when you think about it. The man of sin, the son of perdition, the fellow that has his throne given to him by the devil. What could be more evil than that when you think about it? Look what's said over in the book of Daniel concerning this Antichrist in chapter 11, verse 36. And the king shall do according to his will. He thinks he's doing everything according to his free will. Look at that. And he shall exalt himself and magnify himself above every god shall speak marvelous things against the God of God. Now, isn't that evil? And shall prosper till the indignation be accomplished. For that that is determined shall be done. Now, who determined the rise and reign of the Antichrist? God, by His determinate counsel and foreknowledge. But yet that event here is said to be determined, and it shall be done. Somebody said, do you believe what is to be will be? I think so. I'd rather believe that. Believe what is to be won't be. I'd rather say it a little bit differently. I'd rather say that what God has determined, God will bring to pass. And the same can be said of the revival of the Roman Empire there in the book of Revelation, chapter 17, verse 17. The ten kings of the revived Roman Empire... God has put it in their hearts to fulfill His will and to give their power unto the beast. And it goes on in that verse to say that it shall be fulfilled. I tell you that when it comes to matters of providence, God has gone before. And there's not anything that happens that takes God by surprise. Because He's gone before, 
in the way of providence. Well, you know that's true of the death of Christ. I didn't mention that because that's the one we usually use. You know, it's also determined that some will be disobedient to the Word, according to 1 Peter 2 and verse 8. They'll stumble at the Word, whereunto they are appointed. Who appointed them? I'd say God. And I praise Him that He has not appointed me to rest, but to obtain salvation by the Lord Jesus Christ. It's the most glorious thought to me. Then there's another thing we'd like to mention, and that is that the Lord has gone before His people into heaven. You know why I want to go to heaven? Because of forerunners up there already. That's what's said in Hebrews chapter 6 and verse 20. You know what a forerunner is? It's somebody that goes into a place where the rest of the people are soon to follow. Remember when the twelve spies were sent out? The others later, what, took quite a while, but they finally did follow. Somebody sent ahead to be a scout or to be a spy, we might say. And it guarantees that the rest are going to follow. So somebody said, how do you know that you're going to go to heaven? I know because the forerunner is already up there. And that guarantees that I'm going to be there before too long. Did he not tell us that before he left? He said, I go to prepare a place for you. And if I go and prepare a place for you... I will come again and receive you unto myself, that where I am, there you may be also. Don't you think about that Levitical high priest? He really wasn't much of a forerunner. People couldn't follow him into the Holy of Holies. I tell you where Jesus Christ, the great high priest, has gone, we're going to follow him. We're going into the very presence of God. He's already taken that inheritance for his people. We're all traveling that way. That's why we need to look unto Jesus. That's why we need to set our affections on things above rather than upon this earth. Because it will not be long until we'll be where the forerunner is, either by death or by the rapture. It'll be the most glorious time when he comes back and the dead saints are raised and the living saints are translated and we all go up to meet him in the air and he go back to the Father's house of many nights. It's glorious to know that God has gone before us in the way that we should go. In providence, in grace, in many other ways that we could mention. This ought to cause us to take courage in our toils and in our trials. Don't take any thought for tomorrow because the God that has provided for you today will do so tomorrow. He has already gone before you in the way to take care of you tomorrow. So, well, I've I got some problems. I've got some dangers. I've got some difficulties. God has gone before. He'll make a way of escape. God is with His people. And there's no way to get to them until first you deal with Him because He's out in front. God cannot cease to be God. Omnipotence cannot cease to be faithful. Mercy cannot end, and grace can never become disgrace. Thank God He's going before us in the way. And I say, well, this message sure didn't have anything for sinners. Just wait. Why are you here tonight? 
accident. No, the providence of God. Why did He make you attentive unto this message? Why has everything happened just like it's happened maybe today? Why maybe is it that there's a feeling in your heart you've never had before? You feel a guilt. You feel a burden for your sins. You say, I wonder, wonder what's happened to me. Well, God's gone before in the way. He's beginning to deal with your soul. And this may be the night that salvation will come to you. And so I would just simply say that God has done so many things for you that you've never thought about. And He may have brought you here tonight that you might hear the word of salvation. How that Jesus died for sinners. How that He was buried for sinners. And how that He rose again. And how that everyone that believes this message is to be gloriously saved by Him. We're told in the book of Habakkuk, chapter 3 and verse 13, Thou wentest forth for the salvation of thy people, even for the salvation of thine anointed. So He went forth to provide salvation. He died on Calvary, did He not? Didn't He go before? He sent forth His ministers to preach the gospel. He's given us the Bible, the Word of God. He's put churches in the world to proclaim this message. He's gone before you, sinner friend. And He's gone before you in the way. May this be the night that you'll speak peace to your soul. Because surely we would have men to think about those things that concern everlasting peace with God.